there are all of these products that Appa needs to create right now. Yeah. And I think that process is the way we're going to do it. And mm. one of the reasons I'm really excited about that is there are ways of doing things that the underground understands yeah. and that the spirit world, yeah. the ceremony world understands. Yeah. And not all of those will be applicable to these final products. They're not all reimbursable. They're not all reimbursable. They're none of them appear in DSM five, <laughs> and that's an important thing that we can get into too, and how that factors in. But in terms of process, yeah. if we can imbue our process the way we create these things with their wisdom and have them present and have them lead and center those ways mm. of interacting, yeah. then I think that we are bridging that delta a bit in a way that I'm excited about. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests, including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, the trip report is speaking with Hadass Alterman. And let me warn you, you are in for a doozy. Hadass is the Director of Communications and Policy at the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, aka APA. And in this conversation, we leave no stone unturned. Of course, we get into APA and the organization, the mission, and the specific work they're doing to support psychedelic therapists, guides, and facilitators. But we also get into the concept of power and influence and how these forces are shaping the emerging psychedelic ecosystem. We get into the weeds on the most important legal and policy topics in the psychedelic space, like the influence of big pharma on the DEA and how this is affecting the field now and into the future. We talk about the establishment and the institutions that have outsized influence on the path of psychedelic emergence including the FDA's meddling with the practice of medicine, most famously during COVID, and now with public comments on the use of off-label ketamine. We also discuss bridging the wisdom of the underground and traditional lineages with the modern medical system, the process of bringing together stakeholders from different parts of the psychedelic ecosystem for constructive dialogue and consensus building, the varieties of psychedelic access routes and the trade-offs inherent in them, as well as the current geopolitical situation unfolding in the Middle East. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Hadass Alterman. You were just describing a, I hope this is okay to ask, a, a dinner that you kind of brought people together for yeah. and sounded pretty interesting, yeah. the amalgamation of people that you were bringing together. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what that was and what the intent was, and maybe that will lead us into APA and the work that you're doing there. Sure. So one of the big questions that APA is thinking about is how do we bridge the wisdom and the experience and the skill of the underground mm -hmm. with what is going to emerge as the medical model? Mm -hmm. And for so many reasons, it's a non-obvious path forward. I think everyone agrees that it's important, or at mm -hmm. least everyone in the psychedelic community agrees that that's important. I don't think that everyone in the psychedelic economy has necessarily grasped it yet mm -hmm. for several reasons that we can get into. But amongst APA, amongst our elders, amongst our, I would say for the most part, all of our our members, there's a real understanding that what we know from FDA trials, what we know from randomized clinical trials is a very narrow sliver of how to practice psychedelic-assisted mm -hmm. therapy and the kind of outcomes mm -hmm. we can see, both in terms of what actually is manifested 
from the treatment and also what the the desire at the outset is, like what you're trying to measure, what you're trying to mm-hmm. get for the patient mm-hmm. and who the patients are, right? Because with RCTs, you have a really, really limited, narrowly prescribed scope yeah. of who can participate. Who's allowed into the trial based on medical history and comorbidities and that kind of thing. Right? Exactly. So you, you really have a, a, an unrealistic representation of how this would look like in the real world. Right. Like setting aside the issues around diversity and it being, Mm -hmm. you know, mostly white people Mm -hmm. in MAPS trials, despite sincere best efforts to the contrary, even when you try to solve for that, you're still getting patients that represent, I don't know exactly what the percentage would be, but a really thin sliver of who you're actually going to see in clinical practice in the real world. So. How do we define what good clinical practice is? How do we teach that? How do we train people in good clinical practice? Mm -hmm. How do we accredit good training programs that make sure to educate people in a way that when they come out, they're proficient and prepared to practice? And Everything that we've seen so far, all the discussions that we've been in with people who have been in the underground for a long time is that there are ways of practicing and learning and apprenticing for years Mm -hmm. and years and years that really don't fit into what we currently understand as medical school training and practice in a clinical setting. But if we lose those things we lose some of the magic and we really lose out on efficacy. Mm-hmm. So we're really right now trying to think through what are the ways in which we can incorporate that stuff. And we had a dinner bringing together the experts and the, the luminaries and the people who have been many behind the scenes, many very much center stage mm-hmm. in academia, mm-hmm. in clinical trials for you know marketing purposes commercial purposes, who really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And we basically just asked them, if you had four days, a series of three conferences that were going to last over the course of four days, yep. where you would get to decide what is good practice, how do you train people to do it, and mm-hmm. how do you make sure that training is consistent, what would you do? What kind of questions would you ask? Right. Who would be there? What's on the agenda? And we basically just had people talk about it and then report back. Interesting. So this was bringing together people from various parts of the ecosystem, coming at this from different angles and asking them, what does a, and you say a conference, like, is this like a, uh, the public can attend? Is this for clinicians? Is this for researchers? Is this closed doors? What what is that? What does that look like? It's going to be a working meeting. So a group of people coming together with an intended outcome, there's going to be some sort of product that's created at the end. And the product is going to be important and usable and will be certainly some type of guideline. Mm -hmm. But I think that the process is going to be equally important. We're working with a team from the Stanford Design School that's been looking at psychedelics for a while. And they're going to help us because my thought process was, okay, I just just read the Elon Musk biography. And one of the things that I took away from it is if you want a really good product, build a really good factory. Mm. And there are all of these products that APA needs to create right now. Yeah. And I think that process is the way we're going to do it. And mm. one of the reasons I'm really excited about that is there are ways of doing things that the underground understands yeah. and that the spirit world, yeah. the ceremony world understands. Yeah. And not all of those will be applicable to these final products. They're not all reimbursable. They're not all reimbursable. They're none of them appear in DSM5. <laughs> and that's an important thing that we can get into too and how that factors in. But in terms of process, yeah. if we can imbue our process the way we create these things with their wisdom and have them present and have them lead and center those ways mm. of interacting, yeah. then I think that we are bridging that delta a bit in a way that I'm excited about. So you've used the the phrase APA, and I don't know if we've identified what that is yet in our conversation here, but tell me what APA is. The American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, and we are the member 
organization for the field as well as the accreditation body. So tell me what accreditation means. Accreditation is, well, let me take a step back. So when all is said and done, we're going to have the Board of Psychedelic Medicines and Therapies, Mm -hmm. BPMT, Mm -hmm. certifying practitioners. So there's going to be two tests, one for licensed practitioners Mm -hmm. and one for unlicensed that a person who has met the criteria to sit for those Mm -hmm. exams can take to hopefully become certified. Mm -hmm. And then BPMT, so they create the test, they administer the test, Mm -hmm. and they also oversee the certification, making sure that people are staying up to date and making sure that if there is some type of violation that rises to a certain level, there's some sort of accountability process. And this is a, a body or a board or an entity that exists in in every profession, right? Medicine, right. law, therapy, like th- there are these over sort of seeing bodies that you might say that handle what accreditation and continuing education and licensure and all these kinds of things. So that's what we're talking about establishing for the psychedelic field. Is that exactly the right way of thinking about exactly. it? Exactly. So when we talk about, we use the word Infrastructure. When we yeah. talk about building infrastructure, I think a highway is actually a perfect metaphor. Right. Where you've got developers building a suburb, and then you've got the city where you have jobs, schools, grocery stores, but you need a road. Someone's mm-hmm. got to build a road to get from point A to point mm-hmm. B, and someone has to make sure that there's speed limit signs and someone has to yeah. enforce them. Yeah. And that's not something, at least in this country, that's not something that the private sector does. Yeah. We have the government to do it. Yeah. And the idea here with infrastructure for the psychedelic space is we actually don't want the government to do. It. We want the government to do as little as humanly possible. Yeah. And there are limits on what they can do, which mm-hmm. is another thing we should talk about, but they're not well situated to do it. They've yeah. been banning this stuff yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for the past many decades. And so there was a really good idea a couple of years ago that people needed to get together, find philanthropic funding and fund mm-hmm. these field infrastructure projects. So mm-hmm. BPMT is one of them. They're a sister organization. They're mm-hmm. going to do certification. Okay. And APA, as the accrediting body, is going to accredit the training programs. Got it. So one of the criteria for sitting for BPMT's exam to yep. become certified is the successful completion of an accredited, an accredited training, training program. program. Got it. So that makes sense to me, I think. And how are you thinking about now, obviously, there's like a is schism the right word, but like there are routes to access that are being debated and being disputed. And, you know, we have maps that are kind of heading towards an FDA approval, knock on wood, hopefully soon, and follow on companies there that are creating FDA approved drugs that will be administered in healthcare settings, reimbursed by insurance, administered by healthcare professionals, doctors, therapists, et cetera. But we also have states like Oregon and Colorado that have created some formats of legalization and or decriminalization. And so how do you think about the different landscapes there and the role of APA in these different contexts? So I think about four access pathways in this psychedelic universe. We've got access pathway number one, which is sacramental use. Mm -hmm. So religious use mostly covered in terms of the law by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Mm -hmm. We've got decriminalized use, Mm -hmm. which I actually, well, first I'll define it. It's just when the state or the federal government, that hasn't happened yet. I don't know if it will. Not going to happen anytime soon. Either reduces or eliminates criminal penalties for use of a Schedule Mm One controlled substance. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to push for calling that naturalistic use because decriminalization defines the law. Yeah. Naturalistic defines the actual use. I will I will adopt that language. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome to the team. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the movement. <laughs> and then there's state level supported adult use. So that's what you were mentioning with Oregon mm-hmm. and Colorado, mm-hmm. where thus far the way it's happened is Voters pass a ballot initiative, yep. meaning someone comes in, writes a bill, they get the qualifying number of signatures yep. to get on the ballot, yep. and then they succeed 
in the election. They yeah. get it passed. The governor signs it. And then what's happened in Oregon, Colorado, the format has been the governor appoints an advisory board mm-hmm. that then creates different subcommittees to create the regulations mm-hmm. that govern the program. Yeah. And the program is basically you have permissible adult use in service centers where a person can go in and receive psychedelic psilocybin. So far, it's just psilocybin assisted services. So it's not therapy. therapy. They're not treating. They're not diagnosing. It's not the medical model. They don't need a license, but they do need to be trained in a training program that meets state created criteria. The service centers need to be permitted and the manufacturing need to be permitted. And then there is the medical model. Mm -hmm. And the medical model is everything that's going to happen post-FDA approvals. So right now, the only way people are accessing psychedelics in that pathway is either through ketamine or via some sort of clinical Clinical trial. Clinical trials, right. Yeah. So APA is primarily focused on the medical model in terms of building field infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We are creating clinical practice guidelines. Mm-hmm. We've already put out general practice guidelines, mm-hmm. which are called professional practice guidelines. We did that with the collaboration of a group called Brain Futures mm-hmm. that's doing really interesting work, particularly around reimbursement. Yep. And we're also doing the accreditation, which in large part applies to the medical model. In any case, it's focused on the medical model first. We're going to have accreditation that's Mm -hmm. relevant to non-licensed training programs as well because there's going to be a test that's available to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of our membership, we are open to practitioners participating in all four all access pathways. And we're not only open to members from all four, we really want that because that cross-pollination yeah. of information, again, it's like we're not going to be able to fit all of that yeah. into the guidelines, into the training, et yeah. cetera. But if people can just just talk. <laughs> yeah. You're leading me into a terrain that I want to be careful and because there is this tension and it is between the idea that the medical path through clinical trials and FDA approval is to be protected or to be prioritized. And things like decriminalization, naturalistic use, there you go. sacramental use, are seen, I think, by many as a threat to the viability of advancing the research, the regulatory approval, the access, uh, reimbursement, and what have you. And I'm curious, APA and the work that you're doing feels like right at the center of that bullseye, right? And so help me understand your thinking about weighing those risks, or if you would describe them differently, how, how, does that make sense? Absolutely. What you described people using one access pathway or another mm-hmm. to limit or critique the viability or safety or value of another access pathway is something I see happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And I rarely see it in sacramental use. Mm-hmm. I see it with decrim, mm-hmm. oh my God, with naturalistic Come use. On. I'm a hypocrite. And supported adult use at the state level and the medical model. But I think that it's most threatening when it comes from the medical model yeah. because that's the most entrenched and that's starting yes. from the point of the most power. It's definitely the most funded. Right. And it's going to happen. Yeah. And when it does happen, it's just placed by virtue of how the law is structured in this yeah. country yeah. as the thing that will be the most protected, I think. Yeah. So I see that happening all the time. I don't think it's a good tactic. I don't think that it's a tactic that people who are invested in the psychedelic community ought to use. I think that if you are solely focused on the psychedelic economy, Mm -hmm. perhaps it might make sense. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessary. And I don't really think it's effective. What I see happening 
and the straw man that is set up and and used by people who do that mm-hmm. is a misunderstanding and a fuzzy thinking that's happening around what each pathway actually is and yeah. what it offers. So if we're talking about supported adult use for what it really is and what it's supposed to be under the law, which is non-medical, yeah. people can come in and pursue personal growth, for example. Right. That's not actually in competition with the medical model. It's yeah. carving out a separate space under a separate set of laws and regulation. It opens up a market for people with a different skill set. There's a different total addressable market in terms of mm-hmm. the participants. Mm-hmm. They're not patients. They're really more, you know, clients. Yeah. And it allows the medical model to be the medical model yeah. because yeah. I think for the foreseeable future, most people won't be able to afford psychedelic assisted therapy as it will exist in a clinical setting for personal growth. Right. Or they might not be able to access it for a number of reasons. So I I think that having other pathways where people can engage with psychedelics in other ways, whether it's naturalistically recreationally or for religious intent, I think that it makes each of them make sense. Yeah, yeah. See, the, the, the thing that I just wrote about, and I don't know if I'm going into uncharted territory here. We'll see where this goes. But, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom just vetoed a bill that would, I, I think I'm going to use the term decriminalize in this context, right? Like naturally occurring plants, medicines in California. And it was this format of possession, cultivation, non-monetary exchange. So it's it's not creating a taxed economy, right? It's just advising law enforcement, as I understand it, to not prosecute and prosecutors to not use state funds to prosecute this use. Is that an accurate understanding? So this is an important point. The four access pathways that I outlined, there's sort of a... There are flavors to each. Well, there's flavors to each, and decriminalization has sort of a like a stepchild yeah, <laughs> called deprioritization. Okay. And that's, that's a pathway that is really important in terms of movement building and in terms of the normalization yeah. of psychedelics that happened a couple of years ago where we had decriminalize Oakland and decriminalize San Francisco yeah. and decriminalize Ann Arbor, where yeah. you get all of these city councils. Decriminalize Portland, Maine. Decriminalize Portland, Maine. Two weeks ago, baby. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so those don't actually change right. state law. Yeah. Those do exactly what you explained. Yeah. yeah. What decriminalize California, oh, not that's not actually what it was called, but SB 58 yeah. would have done, they would have actually changed. State law. State oh, law. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. And, and, and I think my point is still, I'm, I'm so reluctant to wade into this territory and, and to use the phrase that I'm about to use because it's, we live in a weird world, but I'll just say it. And I think I can try to articulate it in a non-polarizing way, but the establishment feels like it has a preference for the medical model. And, and, and by establishment we may need to edit this out Aaron I don't know we'll see where this <laughs> goes it's sort of like the the combination of academia pharma healthcare finance right these are the things that go into creating clinical trials but also put like the regulatory agencies that you know the FDA in this context right they're sort of like they're a powerful entity and on the one hand the the DEA and the HHS sort of extend the public health emergency waivers that allow for the telemedicine-prescribed controlled substances, Ryan Hate Act. And then shortly thereafter, we saw a a comment or a a warning from the FDA about the the perils or the dangers of... And I I didn't actually get to the end of this, but I know that they had done this before. It was actually in February of 2022. They made a similar proclamation about the dangers of compounded ketamine. And within this, you know, brief or statement, they pointed people to Spravato, which 
has regulatory ap- approval. And so anyway, my thinking with, with Gavin Newsom's, he is someone who has championed himself as like a proponent of cannabis reform. I don't know the details of it, but I think he was actually kind of instrumental in changing laws or policy in, in the state of California. Or, but but this is different, right? This is like he's going to pass on this, and he asked for guidelines for treatments for protocols, which are things that come from clinical trials. Or I, I guess what I'm saying is again to to invoke this term, the establishment, the powers that be, the I, d- I actually don't think it's the, the term conspiratorial is coming to mind, but like if we look back to 1971, like it's exactly what happened, right? Like the, the Controlled Substances Act was introduced as a tool of cutting the legs out from under this social, cognitive, spiritual movement, right? I spend a lot of time thinking about like what the risks are in this context, in this current iteration of it. And we now have the internet. And we now have social media, and it's a different environment. I I don't know if I've made any sense with that, but I'm wondering if how how do you think about that? And I, I, maybe it's just like an extension of my previous question of the various models and perhaps tension between. But I'll stop talking now. You've literally just described the entire universe of what I think is the most important conversation happening in psychedelics in terms of law and policy right now. And it's going to affect everything. I want to put a a pin in the FDA piece about ketamine and spravato and come back to it because it's incredibly important. And it's the thing that I'm most angry, concerned, slash excited about right now. And it's central to APA's policy position, you know, Mm -hmm. moving forward for the next couple of months, if not years. So just going back to California and Governor Newsom for a second, I think one of the context big picture pieces that's important to keep in mind is now we're coming up on an election. So everything that's happening Mm -hmm. at the federal level, for sure, everything that touches the White House. So that's, you know, all of the agencies are Mm -hmm. implicated in that is being done with an eye towards the elections. And At the state level, that's also true. I think when you have someone like Governor Newsom, who is, I think at this point, likely considering some sort of some sort of move, (laughs) you have to take into account the various factors at play and those pressures. And those have nothing to do with psychedelics. Those have everything to do with the electorate and what Mm -hmm. people want. So there's that. And I think specific to psychedelics. I think what you're saying is actually, it's, it's totally true. People have a very specific idea of how drugs ought to be used and what is safe. And mm-hmm. I think that there is a good faith argument for that. Mm-hmm. And I think there is an argument that I, I don't agree with. And yeah. I think that those two arguments can lead us to the same place. And, and they have in the case of SB 58, which mm-hmm. is that we're not going to do decriminalization. We're actually going to wait until we can have something that's more prescribed and regulated. Yeah. And I think that there is an argument to be had around what do we do when people who shouldn't be engaging with these medicines, either because of age or contraindication or some other context, what do we do when they get a hold of them and they don't know what Zendo is, and they don't know what dance safe is, yeah. and they have no support, and they're real bad outcomes. And the individual outcomes are tragic, and possibly the reverberations of those outcomes as they affect, you know, drug policy generally, psychedelics specifically, those are also bad. And I think that there are really important conversations to have there. And mm-hmm. I think that what should happen is non obvious. And then I think that there are people who believe that they have the answer to that, that Mm. they know, well, this is how it should happen, and it should happen by regulating manufacture, regulating service centers, and regulating the training Mm -hmm. for the facilitators. And one of the things that you said that I think is really interesting is that that control that's being exerted, obviously effectively, because 
someone talked to Governor Newsom's office and gave him this idea. That control, it's actually not coming from the medical establishment Mm -hmm. because Governor Newsom didn't say, let's just wait for FDA approvals. He said, let's get a state-regulated program on the books at some point in the future. So he's not saying this needs to happen with licensed clinicians. This needs to happen with FDA approval. He's saying this needs to happen the way it's happening in Oregon or Colorado. With guardrails. With guardrails, which I find really interesting because we don't actually know what's happening in Oregon and Colorado because Oregon's barely just started. We have no Mm -hmm, data. mm -hmm. And Colorado hasn't even been implemented yet. We're still figuring it out. So I find it interesting that there's this seemingly immediate deference given to a model that we have actually a lot more information on how the medical model is going to work because of randomized controlled trials, which don't tell us everything, but they do show safety and they show who it is safe for and who it is effective for in some cases. Although I think the FDA should back off of efficacy and that's something that kind of takes me back to what you were saying about FDA, ketamine and Spravato. And I think Narcan also fits in to Mm. this, this conversation. So FDA is supposed to regulate medicine, drugs. FDA is not supposed to touch the practice of medicine. They have no authority as an administration to do that. Mm -hmm. And they can get into legal trouble for trying. And they have with ivermectin, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting thing that's happened recently where a couple of years ago, FDA, when people were using ivermectin to treat COVID, FDA put out these posts on social media saying, you're not a horse. You're not a horse. Yeah. Which, you know, fair enough. Like, I'm not. I haven't used ivermectin. I understand that, you know, this was a really heightened time when it came to health and people were scared. There were tons of, like, sociopolitical factors at play here. But That doesn't change the fact that the FDA has limits to what they're allowed to do. And three doctors ended up bringing a lawsuit as a result of the post and saying, we've lost jobs, we've lost patients, we've lost teaching positions. We've been seriously harmed by the FDA exceeding its administrative authority. They've gone past safety and efficacy because, of, of course, FDA has approved ivermectin for horses as well as humans. There's yeah. a human formulation that exists. The Nobel Prize was given for the development of ivermectin. Fascinating. Yeah, as I'd a parasitic drug. I'd never heard that before. I think it's one of the most widely used drugs in humans in wow. history. That's incredible. Yeah. And they got in the doctors got an injunction. Yeah. So what does that mean? An injunction is when a court says you have to stop doing something to one of the parties. So they got an injunction against the FDA. Against the FDA. Interesting. Yeah. So now there's, I mean, and there's been an existing precedent, but in recent history now, we have precedent for the FDA, one, (laughs) stepping over the line, doing so pretty flagrantly and callously using social media, and two, being stopped for it. Yeah. And I think this relates back to ketamine and psychedelics more broadly, because that letter that Mm -hmm. you mentioned, where FDA says, We are uncertain about the safety and efficacy of compounded ketamine Mm -hmm. for the treatment of depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. There isn't really language in that letter that I could point to and underline and say, this is an overstep. They're exceeding their administrative authority to regulate medicine. Right, right. But I think that it's a signal of what's to come. And you you always have to also keep in mind that doctors aren't lawyers and lawyers aren't doctors. Mm -hmm. And no one is teaching doctors about administrative law. Yeah. You know, they need to be able to understand, and most of them do understand, the bounds of what they can and can't do. I think when FDA puts out a notice about anything, they're going to read it. They're going to interpret it. They're not necessarily going to consult with a lawyer and they're going to get a certain impression as to what they can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And patients may as well. People running hospitals might as well. Mm -hmm. So 
even though the FDA didn't release a, a rule, yeah, like yeah. this is meaningful. Yeah. And what they said was ketamine, compounded ketamine, we don't know if it's safe and we don't know if it's effective. Mm-hmm. So there's two problems there. We do know that ketamine is safe. Right. right We've known that right. for a very, a very, 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 very long time. It's been approved. Right. It's one, it, it, it's, I mean, I'm glad you brought up this comparison to ivermectin because that's exactly what I've been thinking about because I'm going to write about this next week, because it feels like ketamine is the ivermectin in this scenario. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. I think that the difference here is that, well, this might not be a difference because I don't actually There's know. There's actually more data in support of ketamine for exactly. depression than there, right? Like Because there, there is like, it, it's not through the FDA approval process, but I don't know how many trials there have been of... I am IV ketamine at academic settings. Precisely. There's a ton of evidence. And they say explicitly that we have not seen any research. They said that in the letter? And supporting efficacy, which, okay, fair enough. I don't understand how that's true. I don't think you've looked very hard if you haven't seen any research. I understand that you haven't approved compounded ketamine for certain uses through your process, but that seems like an overreach and it seems like an overreach into the practice of medicine or at Mm. least the beginning of setting a precedent where this is the type of thing they do. And I think it's a really, really dangerous line. It's coming right up against the line. And I think that they are teeing themselves up to be able to do something similar for MDMA and something similar for comp 360 and psychedelics generally. And the reason why, it kind of goes back to when you were using, you were like, I don't know if I should use the word conspiracy or not. There's something interesting that happens with power. Yes. When power operates in a way where it's not always traceable, it's not always discernible. There aren't always bright lines as to how intentional something happens when there's complexity. Yeah, yeah. But the end result is the same where the group that has more power, usually because they have more resources, is treated differently and the outcomes are different. I mean, that's how we judge discrimination in this country. It's not about intent. It's about disparate outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is clearly a situation where when you look at FDA, where does FDA get 50% of their funding? They get it from pharma. And the revolving door between executives, that go from pharma to the FDA and back again, like right, yeah, right, with every federal agency. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why is our food system a disaster? Yeah, yeah. you know, I have I I thought of something one time, and I think I tweeted it that all of our problems are downstream of regulatory capture and alexithymia. What's now, alexithymia? Alexithymia is a condition where you can't feel your emotions. Yeah. Pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. And dehydration. <laughs> well, that is a result of alexithymia. You're right. Because you can't feel thirst. Yeah, you're right. I think that's going to, I'm going to make t-shirts. That's really good. Yeah. Naturalistic use. Naturalistic use. And then alexithymia with a line through yeah. it. So I spend too much time on the internet, you know, because I, I, I read as much as I can. I try to find, you know, signal in the noise about how this psychedelic space thing economy renaissance is is emerging into the world and that brings me into contact with weird shit you know whether it is geopolitical or financial or legal stuff that is out of my bound and you know i i just can't help but think like we're in a very interesting i don't know if dangerous is the right word but like inflectiony point in society and and one of the things i would point to for this is the the nature of power that is distributed across what i think of as like those five places like finance academia pharma in particular although you could say like military industrial complex food systems like there's different versions of it healthcare and i think the regulatory agencies like those things have such gravity and mass to them that it, it just distorts everything that's even like outside of their their field and as you know psychedelics have they're obviously illegal right they've been illegal for a while but psychedelic use is on the rise 
through you know various surveys that we know and the the mismatch of like the evidence that is amounting in their favor for therapeutic use their safety profiles their toxicity profiles and the fact that they're readily available to anybody who wants to find them right. is creating this dynamic and i can't help but think that there is going to be a response from goliath or this you know power structure and i see things like somebody with national aspirations in politics vetoing a decrim bill as putting into that the category there i see letters from the fda about going up to the line as so again it's like i'm i'm i guess i'm saying i'm like uh, I feel grateful and not necessarily validated, but feel like, okay, you're seeing the same thing that I, I am and you're an attorney and you're interfacing with this world in a way that, I don't know, it's it's gratifying to hear your perspective on this. So Thank you. I mean, I feel it. the same way. I, I feel validated that you're seeing all of this too. Mm -hmm. And I wish we were wrong. Yeah. I also don't think all hope is lost. Yeah. I think we need to make a lot of noise and gear up to not get knocked over by federal agencies yeah. because they're run by not elected officials. Yeah. They're not supposed to be running the country. And yeah. I think since really the New Deal – the administrative state has grown and grown and mm -hmm, grown and mm -hmm. grown. And I think, you know, a lot of people are afraid of that phrase because Steve Bannon popularized yeah. it. But I don't think that that makes the argument any less true. Yeah. yeah. These people have a lot of power. Yeah. And when it comes to pharma, I'm by no means trying to shill for pharma or anything like that. I'm not, I'm neither opposed to them nor their champion, I think at this point, they just are. And it's yeah. less about, okay, let's fight big pharma or let's become big pharma. Right. Let's find a way to relate to them that makes sense. And yeah. let's think about how they're doing what they're doing and how we would like it to change and how how we can leverage it, which is also a possibility. Yeah, They're also subject to regulatory capture at the end of the day. Totally. And this is part of just my bias, my vantage point as someone that works for practitioners. Right now, the way I see it, supporting practitioners and making sure they have their full right protected to make decisions when it comes to patient care, mm -hmm. which is something that is their right and their right alone. The FDA is not supposed to yeah. practice medicine or yeah. impact the practice of medicine, and neither is pharma. And that's the thing that shocks me, and that's the thing that scares me, and I think we're going to see more and more of this with psychedelics for reasons that I think are scary and interesting. Pharma companies should not be influencing the practice of medicine. The mm -hmm. last time we saw that, we ended up with opiate crisis. That is, is that about, is that like anti-kickback laws or? I think it's a number of different things. So there's corporate practice of medicine. Yeah. Right. So most, I think, well, not most, half to most of states in this country have corporate practice of medicine laws. and the federal government has some as well, blue sky laws, anti-kickback laws. And basically, for the most part, what they're saying is companies that are not run by doctors, not owned by doctors, cannot make decisions that trickle down to impact patient clinical care, care. clinical care. And this is the thing I keep coming back to is that only doctors are trained to do that. Yeah. And only doctors yeah. should do that. And doctors have both a ethical obligation to make sure that they are the ones making these decisions. But there's also a financial interest, yeah. right? Like they put in an incredible amount of time, money, there's opportunity costs that go into becoming healers ideally. And if we're depriving them of that, I think that there's all sorts of serious legal issues that yeah. pharma and the FDA can face. A, what's the phrase like a quagmire well it's a quagmire yeah but it's like a, uh yeah it's a quagmire it's i mean this is the thing that like 
initially prompted me to start the trip report is like, holy fuck, this is going to be wild and weird and super complex. And like four years later now, it's like, it's even more so. Right. Yeah. Right. Let's start to kind of land this plane and, but on an optimistic and a super pumped note. And so I'll give you the responsibility of doing that. (laughs) So I, this is going to sound, this is like the craziest thing to bring up when you've just said optimistic and positive. And I ask that people listening, like listen to the end of the sentence. This feels like one of the darkest times in recent history for the world in terms of of conflict and death mm-hmm. and destruction. I personally, I I feel like this is, you know, watching what's unfolding in the Middle East. I'm Israeli. My family's from Afghanistan. This feels like one of the worst things that's ever happened to me, you know, both because of what's happening in Israel and in Gaza and mm-hmm. all of the other geopolitical causes yeah. and effects. And... I have never been more grateful that this medicine exists. Mm. I've never been more grateful that this medicine is being studied and access is going to be expanded. Mm -hmm. I've never been more in alignment with this movement in some ways. And I think for me, obviously, I believe in all this and I care about it deeply but sometimes it can become theoretical. Yeah. And it can just, you know, it's like my job. This is what yeah. I think about and yeah. talk about every single day, all day. And the past couple of days have been so brutal. And I think it's given me a renewed appreciation for what it is to be at the bottom of a pit yeah. emotionally, where I've had moments of feeling so deeply fragmented that I don't even like want to feel good just kind of like internal destruction based on external destruction yeah. that I haven't felt maybe ever and you know I I'm in New York I'm not in Israel I'm not in Gaza my entire family is there yeah. and I'm you know way too online so I'm seeing a lot of stuff that's awful but yes this is a it's like a ridiculous industry and there's now that I know we can swear a lot of bullshit And the self-importance that we sometimes see here, I think, is actually really well-deserved and really valid. And none of us should be acting from a place of ego. And we should all understand that we are not important as individuals in this. We are important as part of this collective. Mm -hmm. But I do think the people who are bringing this all to the finish line are heroes and they maybe aren't saving the world, but I think they're contributing to people's ability to save themselves from the world. Yeah. Well said. I well said. Sorry. It's been a rough week. Yeah. It's been a rough week. What's salvageable for me in all of this is the conversations I've had as a Jew, as a Israeli with a lot of Israeli family and Family that's that got called into re- the reserves, yeah. you know, that are currently like waiting to go into Gaza because they have to. The conversations I've had with my Arab Israeli friends and with my Muslim friends, some of them have felt harder than others, but all of them have ended in love and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And granted, we're all well, some of us are one degree removed from everything Mm -hmm. some of us are fully in it Mm -hmm. i do feel like there is hope for repair there's people that want to do it yeah you know and i think it's yeah i don't know it's it is hard to put like a good a bow on any of this there's (laughs) no bow there's no bow to put on this so yeah well hadas alterman i appreciate you coming on the trip report this was a wide-ranging and pretty fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this of course. Fun. Where can people learn more about APA and the work that you're doing? APPA.org. We had like a really long domain name for a while, and we finally have changed it. And it's 
now easy. So yeah, appa.org is our website. If you're a practitioner of any kind, you can sign up to become a member. You can also follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. I never remember our handles, but just search American Psychedelic Practitioner Association. They're there. (laughs) And yeah, we'd love to have your voice. So if you're interested, join us. And will the the working meeting conference that you organize or are planning, is that is that coming up? Is that we're in aiming, the works? Yeah. So I think we want to do the first one in either late January or early February. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find all sorts of ways to have people involved, even if they're not there we're funding everything so we can't have everyone there yeah unless you know someone from big pharma wants to be our sugar daddy and then we can just fly in the whole world but yeah that's going to be soon and that'll be we want to have like a crowdsourcing of of what feels important to include yeah cool and you said end of january and i think so yeah yeah well i'll be looking forward to seeing how that goes and learning more and I can put a plug in maybe going. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking you should come and do, and do, do some a podcasts. pod there. Yeah. yeah. Totally. There will be a lot of interesting people, live episodes. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah. That'll be fun. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.